Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Elagabalus, uh, which is a pretty bloody stupid name, to be honest. Not looking forward to having to say this one over and over again for the next half an hour, but, you know, that's the world we live in here. Um, Elagabalus was a Roman emperor who is most famous, I would say, for for just being a, being a huge dirty boy, really. Uh, he's widely considered one of the very worst uh, Roman emperors in history, uh, which is not really something you want to be remembered for, is it? But uh, this bloke, uh, well, actually, before before we continue too much further on, um, generally speaking, these podcasts are obviously pretty, pretty family-friendly, I would say, most of the time. Um, probably a, a pretty hefty, pretty solid PG on these uh, most of the time. And uh, while this one doesn't have any sort of, you know, naughty words or anything else in it like that, certainly dealing with... Uh, what the OFLC might call adult themes. Uh, so just, I just want to consider, consider yourself due. I mean, th- the title is Rome's Dirty Emperor, so I don't know what you're expecting. In any case, you know, consider yourself duly warned that we're going to get into some real grown folks uh, concepts today. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'll be as euphemistic as possible most of the time, as usual. So, you know, if you've got kids listening, you can turn them and say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's... Well, I don't know what he means either, really, you know, and uh, we'll leave it at that. But anyway, just there you go. Consider yourself forewarned. Anyway, this bloke, Elagabalus, just a teenager when he took the imperial throne. And I tell you what, he was an absolute maniac. This bloke, completely obsessed with sex he was. And not just, you know, sort of Flight of the Concords business time, regular sex either. He was an absolute wild thing. He got married at least five times to men and women alike. He jumped into bed with more or less anything that moved um, and apparently even prostituted himself out in the Imperial Palace. So, you know, obviously there's nothing wrong with a bit of rough and tumble like that, but when it's, you know, stopping you from running a massive empire, you might want to cool your heels a bit there, I reckon. Uh, But what's very interesting about Elagabalus is that he uh, may have actually been transgender. We'll discuss this. He definitely defied uh, gender norms at the time, and even today he's, you know, he'd still be considered pretty bloody out there with some of the stuff they got up to. But anyway, you slice it, he didn't impress people with his behaviour as an emperor and uh, wasn't limited to sex either. This bloke, he flew in the face of, you know, the established religious orthodoxy. He messed around with the Roman pantheon, annoyed a lot of people with his views. He was a huge nepotist. And on top of that, he wasn't even, you know, quote-unquote properly Roman. He was some strange foreigner from a strange foreign land who was brought in like that. And this is all the, you know, all the all the, the stuff. Would, obviously, a lot less exciting than the other stuff, but it's fair to say that obviously it all contributed to... Uh, Elagabalus' reputation today is not only an absolute wacko in the sack, but also one of the you know worst Roman emperors of all time. So let's get in, uh, let's get in a bit de- deeper here, as uh, Elagabalus would probably have said, and uh, we'll have a chat about what this, blo- what this bloke was all about. So we're going all the way back here to the beginning of the third century CE, when Elagabalus is born around 204 uh, to a family from Syria, which was of course uh, controlled by the Romans back then. Uh, but he's he's not sort of you know he doesn't fit into this archetypical uh, Roman born and bred kind of person, which you know which is important from a cultural standpoint. It's important a bit later on, as uh, as we'll discover. We're not 100% uh, sure of the date of his birth. 204 is the best guess we can make here. And his name at birth obviously wasn't Elagabalus either. He picked up the name later, which we'll come to in a second. He, his name was uh, the rather more normal, and I can't believe that this is the more normal name here, Sextus Varius Avitus Bassianus. 
uh, which I like that last name particularly because it could conceivably uh, be pronounced Bassy Anus, obviously like Bassy Anus, uh, which is obviously how I feel after a a night on the curry, I can tell you. But anyway, um, he's the son of Sextus Varius Marcellus and uh, Julia or Julia uh, Soemius Bassiana. And his family are pretty bloody posh and knobby, I can tell you. His grandma, Julia Maesa, is the sister-in-law of one of the current co-emperors when Elagabalus was born, a bloke named Septimius Severus. And his mum is the cousin of the other co-emperor, Caracalla. So he's moving in high circles, even as little tacky young Elagabalus is. And uh, as a young fella, he's working as a priest uh, for this god who is, rather confusingly, also called... Elagabalus or Elagabal. There's lots of different versions of, of, of what this uh, god's name was, but Elagabalus as well. And this is where he obviously picked up the name that he's known today. Long-time listeners will remember uh, Caligula was nicknamed uh, that way because he used to wear little soldier's shoes as a kid. And now Elagabalus is named after the god that he's serving. And so you, you can see that, you know, nicknames, the nickname uh, culture in amongst Roman emperors is very strong indeed. Anyway, Elagabalus' family, big into this god, big, big into this god, and so he's working away as a priest, a hereditary position as the high priest of Elagabalus is, you know, is due to him. Nothing too exciting, however, until he reaches the age of 14. Okay, so young bloke grows up in the clergy, but then at the age of 14, this is when things start to kick off, because when he was a kid, right, Septimius Severus, one of the co-emperors, died, leaving just Caracalla as the lone emperor all by himself when he's pat alone there. Caracalla is generally seen as a real prick, nasty piece of work, total tyrant, and as a result, you won't be surprised to learn that he was one of the many Roman emperors that fully took part in the grand imperial tradition of getting assassinated. Uh, poor old Caracalla, one, blo- one time he's off marching about somewhere with his army, uh, and he stopped. He stopped for a quick slash on the side of the road, and uh, just like this, uh, some, uh, some soldier came up to him and uh, just stabbed him. Just like that, assassinated him, ended his life. And uh, even less surprisingly, the bloke who had helped to organise this assassination, uh, a fellow named Macrinus, then declared himself the emperor three days later and gained support of the army. So, all right, I can can already hear you saying this is very typical, very boring Roman politics, nothing exciting about this. Where does our mate Elagabalus come into it? Well, as you'll remember, Elagabalus is related to Caracalla, the assassinated emperor, on his mother's side. His grandma was Caracalla's aunt. And and I can tell you this, she is none too bloody pleased to have her nephew murdered like this. And to make things worse, Macrinus fears reprisals from the relatives and the allies of Caracalla around the Roman Empire. And so he exiles and kills a bunch of people, exiles Elagabalus' family back to their family home, back to their estate in Syria. Now, old grandma Julia Maesa, she doesn't muck around. She doesn't muck around at all. She immediately starts hatching a plot to try to get her own back here because, as I say, she's not happy about how this one's gone down. And uh, she, I mean, you're not going to believe how she manages to, you know, plot her revenge. This, This is what she decides. She goes to her daughter. She has a chat with her daughter, Elagabalus' mum, and she says... Listen here, young lady, here's the plan to get our boy on the throne. This is how we're going to get our own back against this Macronist bastard, right? We are going, you're, well, not we, you, specifically, you are going to say that Elagabalus is the illegitimate child of Caracalla, the assassinated emperor. He, you, you, you buddy, had an affair with him, right? And, and actually, you have raised the, the child of the former, of the, of the previous emperor. And, and, you know, Elagabalus' mum was like, what, what the hell? What are you talking about, mum? What do you say? You want me to say that I got off with my own cousin and had a kid? And Grandma Julia says, well, yes, mate, of course. Have you forgotten it's the, it's the bloody olden days? It's ancient history. No one cares about hopping to bed with your cousin. It's bloody encouraged, if anything. And Julia the Younger at this point goes, oh, yes, you're, fair enough. <laughs> That's yeah, actually a very good point right there. You're right. Um, all right, well, yeah, let's, uh, let's bloody do it. Eh? Sounds great. So 
Julia Maisa, the grandma, she goes around uh, announcing that her grandson is the heir of Caracalla and demands allegiance of all the soldiers that were previously loyal to the assassinated emperor. Uh, you know, who, who again, this, 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 this sort of power dynamic is uh, still a little bit in flux here, and she's hoping to get some of the soldiers on side. Now, of course, you know, you can bring honor, loyalty, and all that virtuous nonsense in it, but the real- reality of the situation is that Julia Maisa is extremely rich, very, very wealthy indeed, and this has a very funny way of inspiring a quite strong loyalty uh, in people no matter what and the, uh, as a result of this wealth uh, she has a lot of influence uh, in this region in, around Syria and immediately a stack of Roman soldiers entire legion come over to Elagabalus's family side and one of the legion commanders is very happy uh, very happy to name him the emperor instead of, uh, of Macronus there so to make him sound more legitimate, right, as an emperor, uh, and, and as I guess as a, as a successor of Caracalla as well, Elagabala starts going by the regnal name of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, right? Uh, and Antoninus? Antoninus? I don't know how it's pronounced. In any case, he's going by the same names that Caracalla used. Um, obviously not Caracalla. So, uh, that name, interestingly, he was known as Caracalla because of a type of hood that he used to wear all the time when he was out off soldiering. I, I look, I don't know what is going on with Roman emperor nicknames. I reckon if I would ever become a Roman emperor, my name would end up being, being bloody Trachydacius if you're named after the bloody things that you're wearing all the time. Anyway, as you might imagine, old mate Macronus, who, you know, apparently he's called himself the emperor. He's an unhappy chappy with this. He's unhappy. He's very unhappy when he hears about what's happening. You know, bloody defecting Roman troops going the way of this young whippersnapper out in Syria. What's all this? I just bloody killed his second cousin once removed, or is it his first cousin twice removed? I, I can never remember, actually. Is it, there's this useful diagram I once saw, actually. It's very informative. Not, look, actually, doesn't matter. Ultimately, irrelevant. First cousin, second cousin, bloody 19th cousin. Doesn't matter. I killed Caracalla, and I'll kill this kid, too. Just see if I don't. And he looks around and, you know, all of his rather confused advisors, they listen to him and they say, well, um, all right, you're emperorness, what are we, we so we're going to go after Elagabalus or what, what, are, what are we doing? And he goes, yes, mate, of course, of course we bloody are. Send out some troops, crush this pitiful, pitiful rebellion straight away, go and get it done. Now, this doesn't go too well for old Macronus, however, he sends off his troops, he sends off his troops to go and fight with a legion that's uh, defected over to, uh, to Elagabalus. And uh, the uh, the soldiers uh, that that go off to fight, they immediately turn on their officers. They're they're drawn by you know the promise of wealth and prestige and whatever else. They switch sides. They join Elagabalus as well. Oops. And uh, to just make the you know really send the message, really make the point very clear, they send their commander's head back to Macronus just for good measure in case you know he missed the point about them defecting. It's good to be thorough about these things. You'd have to say so. Macronus went. Now, you know, now he's, 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 he's in all sorts of trouble now. So now he goes, he went to the Roman Senate to try to gain support for fighting the rebellion, which he duly receives from the Senate. Of course, they, you know, they're very worried about this whole situation out in Syria with uh, Elagabalus gaining more and more momentum as this, uh, this uh, false Augustus, this false, uh, uh, false emperor there. And uh, so uh, with the new Senate support of the Senate, new army, you know, he's, been, he's got all the resources chucked in there like that. Macronus now marches off to meet Elagabalus' forces in battle personally and gets absolutely pantsed in the Battle of Antioch in 218. In this battle, uh, both Grandma Julia and the daughter, the mum of Elagabalus, uh, they, uh, they actually got stuck in themselves. They roused their troops from uh, impending defeat and led a successful counterattack and uh, actually managed to, to beat Macronus and his forces there. And Macronus takes to his heels, attempts to flee. He shaves off his hair and beard and tries to hide. He goes into hiding there. You know, he's walking around. People are going, bloody hell, you look like that... Uh you look like that bloody emperor bloke, don't you? He goes, oh, yeah, oh, no, nah, I get that a lot. You know, handsome fellow, but obviously no hair, no beard, so I don't know. But uh, no, eventually he's recognised, eventually he's captured, and uh, he's uh, executed. And uh, once again, his head 
is sent to Elagabalus. I, I, I have to think, like, it mustn't have been a very nice job being a courier back in those days because half the bloody packages you, you, you're you delivering, taking about there, a bloody stinking severed heads. Bloody hell, it wouldn't have been, been a very good scene there. Anyway, after winning the Battle of Antioch, there is nothing stopping young Elagabalus from well and truly taking the throne as the emperor. He immediately starts using the imperial titles, even without the usually required uh, Senate approval. So this is stuff like Imperator, Augustus, all that sort of stuff. But uh, obviously, you know, doesn't care that he doesn't have the approval from the Senate for that. In fact, he doesn't care about the Senate so much that he actually sends messages to the Senate with a uh, very relieved courier, I would imagine, uh, forgiving them for siding with the false emperor and uh, offering them the the opportunity for amnesty. Very generous of him. And uh, the Senate rather wisely uh, accepted this offer uh, of of amnesty from uh, from the the young emperor. I say from the young emperor, really a lot of the stuff that is going on here is uh, the handiwork of of Julia Maesa, who is, you know, using her young grandchild as as a puppet there. Anyway. The Senate, they're flip-flopping all over the place. I mean, you know, I'm all for pragmatism, but these blokes are changing faster from one side to the other than, you know, one of them bloody reversible jackets from H&M. But he's done it. Support of the Senate, what a legend. Get around him. Elagabalus, he's emperor at the ripe old age of us. I'm sure you've already calculated here. He's just 14 years old. He's just a little kid, and he's already the emperor. I mean, when I was 14, I was wearing, like, uh, I thought it was very fashionable. I was wearing this silver chain with a shark's tooth, and I would quote Monty Python at everyone who would listen and many people who also wouldn't listen. And so based on that, I can't imagine it would have been much fun to have a young adolescent as an emperor, uh, based on, you know, the the state of most 14-year-olds, I mean, including myself at that age. Um, but unfortunately for Rome, unfortunately for Rome, it's much worse than you think it would be, possibly, for to have a 14-year-old as an emperor. He wasn't much of a nerd. Uh, it might have been better if he were a nerd going around quoting Monty, but then he just would have at least been irritating people mildly. But um, instead, he was rather more um, uh, horizontally inclined in his proclivities, I can tell you this. Anyway... He heads off to Rome all the same, and uh, the sobering reality of what has just happened starts to sink into everyone, including the soldiers that had, you know, supported him and their family for their wealth, because Elagabalus is a weird foreigner uh, with weird foreign gods, and despite being advised to lean into being a bit more Roman in that regard, Elagabalus went right ahead and brought his weird customs and traditions to Rome, confident that the people would come around. And uh, don't forget, prior to this, Elagabalus was a priest, and so it's unsurprising that he wasn't just going to, you know, pack in all the religious stuff just like that. In fact, he doubled down at all. Uh, Julia Maesa, uh, I'm very aware that her name probably is probably pronounced Julia Maesa, but yeah, this is English and Jay makes a j- sound, so that's the end of the matter as far as I'm concerned. Um, Julia Maesa is uh, painting, actually sends a painting of him uh, in these uh, priestly vestments uh, to the Roman Senate where it was put up in pride of place at the uh, little shrine they had to the Roman god Victoria. And so any uh, offerings that the senators made to Victoria in the Senate building would also mean, be made to Elagabalus as well. And uh, this is just sort of emblematic of what uh, Elagabalus was doing in attempting to sort of, uh, I don't know what the right word is here, uh, co-opt, I guess, or, or, or completely change the course of the uh, of traditional Roman worship in Rome there. Because uh, this, this is just the start. Just the, you know, the sending of this painting was just, the, was just a, a prelude there because once he was properly settled in Rome, once he actually arrived and got himself settled down, Elagabalus did everything he could to supplant Jupiter, the chief Roman god, by Elagabalus, the um, the god, not himself, obviously. He renamed his god Deus Sol Invictus, which is an extremely good name. Uh, it means god of the undefeated sun. And he started to force people to worship him as the head honcho instead. He rewrote texts to, to give uh, Deus Sol Invictus other Roman gods as consorts. He tried to cement this new god as the centre of the pantheon. And unsurprisingly, people weren't too hot on this at all. They didn't like this at all. But it didn't stop there. Elagabalus also built this enormous temple called the Elagabalium, 
which I think is pretty excellent. Um, and he announced himself as the high priest of this new god. And Oh, sorry, he didn't just announce it, actually. He made a great big production of this. Uh, it culminated in him uh, getting circumcised and then dancing around the new temple while forcing senators to watch. Uh, he then filled this new temple with holy relics from all the other Roman gods and brought this great big meteorite from his home. This was supposed to be the personification of this uh, of this sun god, Deus Sol Invictus. Uh, brought it through, uh, from all the way from his home in Syria, paraded around the city, great big relic there like that in this golden chariot or whatever else. And uh, people didn't love this forced change, their established sort of religious orthodoxy, but uh, they did enjoy the festivals that Elagabalus was organising for... Uh, uh, for, for Deus Sol Invictus there, as they generally involved a lot of free food. So that is one way to win the pop uh, the population over. But uh, look, pretty pretty typical stuff for Elagabalus here, doing just whatever the hell he wanted without worrying about the consequences. And uh, if you think this bit is boring, well, it's because it is, more or less, you know, all the religious stuff that he was doing that put a lot of people offside. But it heats up from here. Heats up from here. We've eaten the Brussels sprouts by listening to his, uh, you know, listening to what happened with his religious reform. So let's get to the much juicier and more appetizing details of his debauchery here. Now, we can start things off rather tamely by saying that he's a pretty effeminate bloke. This Elagabalus, pretty effeminate. He liked to go around in women's clothing. He wore a fair bit of makeup here and there and everywhere. And uh, you know, he, he when he was uh, sort of doing his affairs of state, when he was doing his emperoring, uh, he tended to be a, li- a little bit more uh, conventional with his appro- approach to you know how he presented himself. But outside of this, uh, he was he was a very effeminate, very sort of gaudy and out there, very um, eccentric and uh, and and sort of uh, decadent young bloke. And uh, this put a lot of people offside. They weren't very happy with this because again, didn't wasn't it, it wasn't a very seemly look for uh, the the bloke who was supposed to be in charge of the entire empire there. But uh, again, just the tip of the iceberg, I mentioned before that he got married five times. One of these marriages, uh, at least, at least, one of these marriages uh, also heavily upset the religious orthodoxy we're talking about. He got himself hitched to a vestal virgin named Aquilia Severa. Now, Vestal Virgins were priestesses. They were kind of like nuns. Uh, they were priestesses of the goddess Vesta, uh, who also happened to be virgins, sent, you know, hence Vestal Virgins. Uh, and they did all sorts of priestly stuff. They looked after eternal frame, uh, frames and, uh, you know, sacred relics, all, you know, all that regular sort of priesting you, you might do. But... Uh, Gets quite interesting because if they were found ever found not to be virgins, uh, they would end up being buried alive. That was the punishment there. Pretty pretty unbelievable. Uh, but it gets even more ridiculous when you learn about both why and how this was the punishment for these poor women. They were buried alive because these women were so holy, so sacred that it was forbidden to fill, spill their blood. It was blasphemous, heretical to spill the blood of Vestal virgins. And so the only way that they could then be executed was by burying them. But the problem was... It was also forbidden to bury people within the city of Rome. So you can just imagine their problem here when they've got to punish these Vestal non-virgins. And some, uh, some hawkish Roman lawyer type, I bet, came up with, uh, with this mo- the most absurd solution you're ever going to hear here. Rather than the traditional idea of someone being buried alive, you know, put them in a hole in the ground, cover them in dirt, right? Vestal virgins uh, were instead put inside this like a little tiny vault with a small amount of food, water, and even a bit of furniture, and then the vault was buried. And this apparently didn't uh, count as burying someone in the city. After all, you're just putting them in a perfectly habitable room, aren't you? You know, it's food and drink and everything. They're very, very comfortable. And then the vault would be buried instead, not the person itself, uh, even though they were obviously in the vault. Uh, pretty bloody horrible to think about, really. But, you know, humans have always found ways to do pretty nasty things to each other over the years, and this is just another one of them, I suppose. Anyway, 
Elagabalus, he married this Vestal virgin who was presumably not a virgin for, you know, much longer after that. But uh, all the same, she wasn't buried alive. Oh, sorry, if you like, she wasn't, you know, forced to take up a a fleeting residence in a perfectly habitable underground vault. Um, but this marriage pissed off a lot of people. It really did, again, because the Vestal Virgins were seen as so sacred, so holy, whatever else, that the marriage was abandoned before long on the urging of Grandma Julia Mesa, who seemed to really have a, you know, quite a quite a, a scone in the old noggin there to uh, for, for puzzling out these political problems. It doesn't seem to be, you know, it doesn't seem to be too hard to come to the correct opinion, but at least his grandma knows exactly what uh, he should be doing. Anyway, this actually wasn't his first marriage. Um, uh, his first marriage was to a woman named Julia or Julia uh, Cornelia Paula. But, you know, come on, mate, he's 14 years old. You know, he's ne- it's never going to last, even if he's, saying, yeah, he's going around saying, oh, no, it's real, mum, it's not just a face, get out of my room. He, obviously, the marriage fell apart not too, uh, you know, pretty pretty swiftly indeed. And so after that, there was uh, Aquilia Severa, the Vestal, well, the not the Vestal anything anymore, really. Uh, but uh, after this, Elgabala shacked up with um, uh, his next wife, whose name was Anna Aurelia Faustina who was the widow of a bloke that he had recently had executed. I mean, come on, bloody hell. There is cutting someone's lunch, and then there is cutting off their bloody head just so you can cut their lunch. Chill out, Elagabalus, old son. I don't know what's going on with him. We're not 100% sure about his, his other marriages, but we definitely know that he, he, he definitely did. He loved to get around. He did get around. At least one contemporary historian tells us that he also got married to a bloke, an athlete named Zoticus. Now, even if they didn't get married, Elagabalus didn't mind. He didn't mind a nice uh, nice hunk of a bloke there. And he was uh, involved at one point with another fella named Hierocles, uh, a famous charioteer. And all of these relationships, these ongoing entanglements with men and women, you know, that, that are sort of at least, I'd say long-lasting, at least in teenage years, in teenage terms, they're long-lasting. On top of all of these, these are completely separate to Elagabalus going out and about, picking up men and women all over town, and even sometimes literally prostituting himself out in the imperial palace itself. He's, as I said, used to wear makeup, he'd dress himself all fancy in women's clothing, he'd remove his body hair, and he had a whole area of the palace where he'd uh, become a... um, a gentleman of uh, negotiable affection, I think is a good way to put it. He's having bloody big orgies at his new temple. He's going around all promiscuous and sleeping with people left, right and centre. And the Romans were not fans of this at all. They're not fans of this foreign weirdo coming in, messing with their gods and now basically turning the entire city of Rome into one great big red light district. It's not, uh, it's not something that's going down too well. Now, an interesting sort of wrinkle or an interesting sort of facet here uh, to Elagabalus' sexuality, and, and, you know, this is something that, uh, that modern historians and, and, and modern commentators have kind of picked up on here, is that he may have been transgender. I mean, you know, obviously, these days there's a lot more awareness, you know, a lot more sympathy for that sort of thing than there was back then, but uh, you've got to have some measure of understanding that, uh, you know, poor Elagabalus here probably wasn't living his best life. Um, apparently, he offered enormous amounts of money to doctors at the time, asking them to perform, uh, you know, gender reassignment surgery if they could, but none of none of them actually, you know, even even attempted it, despite the the rewards that the emperor was offering them. It's not it's not totally unreasonable to call Elagabalus a, a transgender person based on the way that he behaved. But you, you've got to be aware that you're applying a concept that is largely viewed today through a completely different lens than it would have been back then. You know, this is this is a much more modern idea, and and, and sort of trying to transport it straight back to this ancient times is, is not necessarily always going to yield the uh, the most fruitful results when when you know in in terms of a, establishing a, a, an accurate historical narrative. It, I mean, you know, this isn't just limited to to transgenderism, sexuality in classical history more broadly was perceived and, and, and defined in very different ways 
when compared to today. So, you know, I'm a little hesitant in slapping these modern labels onto someone from ancient history because, again, it, it doesn't, you know, it's a great soundbite. It's a, it's a very, um, you know, it, it's something that naturally captures the interest of people today. But in terms of preserving a, a legitimate historical narrative, it, you know, it, it's potentially misleading in that case. Anyway, anyway you slice it, it doesn't matter, you know, whether we're going to put labels on this bloke or not. Elagabalus definitely ran against the grain when it came to sec- uh, sexuality and gender. Uh, I mean, you know, not only by historical standards, ancient standards back then, also by modern standards even today. But I'll tell you this. Absolutely didn't care. He didn't care at all. He had absolutely no shame. He didn't care about uh, even you know even when his political opponents are coming out trying to attack him with stories of his profligacy. He'd actually turn it back on his critics by saying that he didn't care and that he probably made more money and got laid more than they ever would, and so that you know it absolutely didn't matter to him. He, you know, look, I'll say it again. There is nothing wrong. Obviously, there is nothing wrong with getting busy like this in such a passionate and you know all-encompassing, very inclusive fashion. But it shouldn't come at the expense of, you know, doing your bloody job and running an empire, mate. Elagabalus' obsession with sex was one of the many things that uh, made him an enormously unpopular emperor with his subjects, you know, along with his religious nonconformity and his horrific nepotism. Speaking of nepotism, he gave fancy and powerful titles to, you know, those close to him, such as his lovers, Hierocles the charioteer, Zoticus the athlete. And his mum and his grandma also benefited enormously. They were the first women ever to be allowed into the Senate, which again put a lot, lot of noses out of joint. They both got senatorial titles, they both had their faces put on coins, and it was pretty clear to everyone that they were the real power behind the throne based on you know the the the, the lives they were living and the, and the and the sort of very clear role they had in the decision making uh, for this young emperor there he also gave you know friends and even friends of friends power money titles and he generally just gave an absolute clinic on what not to do as leader of a powerful empire and on top of this he was running the empire into the ground in many other ways. He had devalued the Roman currency. He'd lost support of the army. There was constant fighting with him in the Senate. There was a breakdown of discipline in the bureaucracy and the military throughout the Roman Empire. And he's even started to fall afoul of his own Praetorian guard. He's that unpopular that in 221, more or less everyone is sick of this bloke. He'd been emperor for almost four years. And things had only gotten worse with him in charge. And so it's at this point that the cunning old Julia Maesa realises that she better change her tack. She has Elagabalus name an heir, another grandchild of hers uh, from a different daughter. Uh, this uh, this uh, young bloke, he's, he's 14 as well, and his name, well, he's 14 at the time, so Elagabalus, 18 at this stage, um, is Severus Alexander. Now, Elagabalus names his cousin consul for a while, but this doesn't last because Elagabalus realises that everyone likes Alexander a lot more than they like him. Now, ultimately, envious and angry, he strips Alexander of his titles and actually started to circulate rumours about him being near death so that when he finally assassinated Alexander, it wouldn't be a shock. Now, this plan didn't go down too well uh, with a lot of people, uh, including, most importantly, his mother, or sorry, his grandmother there, Julia Maesa, who has other, obviously very big plans for young Alexander there and is wanting to get her rather more, um, uh, you know, decadent grandson out of the way there so uh, she can have someone who's a little easier to control on the throne and uh the the you know the fact that he he stripped alexander of all of his titles backfired enormously on poor old elagabalus it backfired enormously caused uh, you know caused nothing short short of riots in the street as uh, you know more or less almost certainly spurred on by uh, political moving and shaking from people like julie mesa there um, so as a result, the Praetorian Guard, they're sort of forced to act here. They're sort of forced to act and, and find out the truth. And so they demand to see Alexander themselves. Now, foolishly, 
Elagabalus brought Alexander out to the guard, who are pretty prepared for what is about to come next. Many of the soldiers, they start to cheer when they see Alexander is completely fine. And incensed by this, incensed by this, uh, you know, this this unorder- this disorderly display of, uh, of, uh, of approbation and approval for someone who, other than himself, Elagabalus, uh, he orders the arrest and the execution of all of these soldiers who are cheering and, uh, and, and stamping and shouting in, in support of, Elag- of, of, of Alexander there. Um, but uh, again, this backfires pretty, pretty bloody badly because these soldiers, they're sick of having an incompetent root rat as an, as an emperor. They turn on Elagabalus and they attack him. They attack him and his mother. And uh, these two poor people, they're, they're cut down and they're killed almost immediately. His corpse was paraded through Rome and then chucked in the Tiber as a final insult. And his bones still rest there with the shopping trolleys and the, and the pizza boxes that litter the bottom of the river. Now, Alexander, he became the emperor, uh, very much the, the puppet of uh, Julia Maesa after this point, who had orchestrated this to, you know, run, may, maybe not in, in exactly these lines, but it orchestrated a situation where she could rule the emperor uh, rule the empire and indeed the emperor, you know, with Alexander as a as a as a more or less a figurehead there. And you know, this is a pretty common situation in in place like this, having a power behind the throne there. But for all her efforts to establish, you know, a, a competent and effective government there by ruling through her other grandchild, it was uh, it was too late. Julia Maesa was uh, was a little too late to to save Rome from its destiny because what came next was a period in Roman history known as the Crisis of the Third Century. We've actually talked about this a little bit on the podcast already in uh, episode thirty six, the story of Queen Zenobia. Zenobia was one of the many people who took advantage of of, of the general down the, the the downward trajectory, the uh, you know the spiraling, the the chaos that had engulfed the Roman Empire at this stage. And uh, you know, people like Zenobia, they tackled the Roman Empire head on, and it was a, it was a, it was a very it was very dicey and 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 uh, dangerous time for for the Roman Empire. And uh, you know, again, episode thirty six, if you want to hear a little bit more about the Christ of the third century and some of the consequences of what happened because of this general downturn of fortune, uh, you know, this uh, uh, this decline in success uh, for the Roman Empire there. But all the same, Alexander, he survived his time as a teenage emperor, perhaps, you know, due to the fact that he spent most of his time vertical and not destroying established religious orthodoxy. But, you know, who, who really knows? Who really knows? Elagabalus, however, he doesn't have much of a legacy. He's widely remembered as one of the worst ever Roman emperors with few, if, if any, real achievements, uh, you know, in a wake of sex fueled destruction behind him. However, however, I think that's impo- this, this is important. It's important to remember that he is remembered. Even if he isn't remembered for much, he is remembered. Everyone knows the names of the best Roman emperors, the best US presidents, the best military leaders throughout history. We all heard of Alexander the Great. You know, we all know about Abraham Lincoln. We've all heard of Napoleon. And the worst in class are also very famous indeed. Elagabalus is at least known. Better to be him at the bottom of the spectrum, you would think. If you can't make it to the top, you may as well go right right down to the bottom. Better better to be at the bottom rather than someone like, I don't know, Emperor Balbinus, who not only had a stupid name, but also has a Wikipedia article that starts with the words, not much is known about Balbinus. Look, I'm I'm not advocating that you, you go out and conduct orgiastic celebrations in a new temple or hop into bed with the first thing it'll have you in order to, you know, secure your place in the history books, thereby deep diving straight down to the bottom. But I will point out, that even if Elagabalus was a total failure as an emperor, we're still saying his name nearly 2,000 years later. So he definitely did something. 
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Elagabalus. What a dirty boy he was indeed. And uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting to, to hear these stories. Again, they can't all be winners, I suppose. And if, if, you, if you can't make it to the top, maybe you do just go for the bottom. I don't know if Elagabalus was trying to cement his place in history by prostituting himself out in the Imperial temp- Palace, but, you know, maybe he was. Who knows? Anyway, going to close out the show with the normal boring housekeeping stuff here. Halfasthistory.net is the website for the podcast. You go there, find all the old episodes, and uh, subscribe, if you like, through iTunes or Spotify or uh, podcast for Android as well. If you've got suggestions as to how I could maybe improve the show or you've got ideas for uh, topics, please get in touch with me. There's a contact form on the website. I've got a stack of emails that I'm needing to get back to. I'm sorry, I've had a couple of, a busy couple of weeks, but uh, next week I'm, I've, I've, I've put some time in my diary to, to get on top of my correspondence and, and get back to, in touch with people who've been in touch. So thanks so much for all the people sending in emails. Um, and uh, a special thank you, of course, goes to all of the people supporting me on Patreon. I've had so many people sign up recently. Again, there are no benefits whatsoever. You're just giving me money. So thank you so much to the generous uh, generous hearts of, uh, to the people there. Oh, gener- your entire body's generous, really. Every, every every particle you're being generous, and I thank you so much for it. Um, if you've got ideas for what sort of benefits you might like if you're a patron member, please let me know because as long as it's generally low effort and pretty easy to you know for me to do, more than happy to start putting some stuff in place because uh, yeah, I've got quite a few patrons now, and I, you know I'd love to be I'd love to be able to give something back uh, you know for for their generosity. Anyway, that's that for this week. Thanks so much for hanging out with me for another episode of Half Fast History. See you again here next week for more of it. Uh, I'm going to leave you as usual with a question posed on Reddit. Jojen Copy Paste, Reddit historian Jojen Copy Paste, wants to know How did the Romans not see the sack of Rome happening? The tribe was literally called the Vandals. Vandals.